turn to Psalm 2 as I get set up here. So last time I preached, I, I taught uh, Psalm 1, and I began uh, that message by saying that this psalm is of the Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes while preaching the psalms uh, with a Christ-centered hermeneutic or Christ-centered interpretation, people react uh, negatively to that. And I'm not saying that I received a negative reaction, but I have in the past. And I think the reason uh, for that is uh, when you preach the Psalms in this way, uh, when you preach the Psalms um, in light of what Christ has done, uh, it can feel like you're taking something away from them. Right? They, uh, people relate to the Psalms uh, so much that when you teach that the Psalms are of Christ or about Christ, there's a temptation to see them as not relevant for you any, any longer. But I want to challenge that way of thinking this morning because like Psalm 1, Psalm 2 is about Christ. And the truths contained in Psalm 2 should be an encouragement to the church in the face of any trial. And as we read Acts 4 later, we're going to see that this psalm, which they understood to be about uh, the circumstances uh, related to the life, death, and bur uh, burial and resurrection of Christ, is what sustained them in persecution. Understanding that Christ is king and that he reigns over his people and that his kingdom will never fail, that should provide tremendous comfort to us in the face of any trying circumstances as the church. So that I pray as we study the psalm that we would see Christ in it and that our hearts would be comforted by the office that Jesus holds as our king. Let's read Psalm 2 together. Psalm 2, verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, you shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray for the Lord's help as we study this portion of his word together. Heavenly Father, we know that uh, the preaching of your word is given as a means of grace to us to nourish and strengthen our sometimes weak faith. When we watch the news and when we uh, talk to one another about what is happening 
in our culture and the, the moral decline that we're seeing and the increased hostility towards, towards you and towards the church, we uh, can be filled with uh, fear and anxieties and we can start to doubt. Uh, but Lord, I pray that as we read this psalm and study it, um, that we would confess that our Lord Jesus Christ has been installed as head over the church and that his rule and reign is unchallenged by any enemy. And we pray that we'd be comforted by this word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In Psalm 2, we have four uh, sections or four different paragraphs with four different voices uh, speaking. In section 1, verses 1 through 3, the nations speak. And we see that they rage against the Lord and his anointed. In section 2, verses 4 through 6, the Father speaks. And he speaks to those nations and he laughs and he installs his king. In section 3, 7 through 9, the Son speaks and tells us of the decree of the Lord. And we learn about how he inherits and judges. And then the fourth section, which is 10 through 12, I'm going to argue the Spirit speaks. And he warns, uh, both warns and welcomes us to worship him. So we'll look at section number one first, the nations, in verses one through three. And in, in this section, there are many connections that point us back to Psalm one. Psalm two, verse one says, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The word devising in Psalm two, one is the same word uh, for meditates in Psalm 1, verse 2. In Psalm 1, the blessed man meditates in the law day and night. And in Psalm 2, the nations and peoples meditate on a vain thing. I think the Legacy Standard Bible is the only one I saw that translated it that way, but that's, it's the same word. And there's a second connection in Psalm 1, in verse 2, when it says, the kings of the earth take their stand against uh, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So in Psalm 2, the wicked take their stand against the Lord. And in Psalm 1, verse 5, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. There's these themes that are uh, uniting these psalms together. And, and the point here uh, in that one is that those who take their stand against the Almighty... Right, those who take their stand against God and meditate on a vain thing, in the end, they will not stand when he is installed as king. In these first three verses, we see the identity of those who were against him. In verses 1 and 2, we see that it is the nations, the peoples, and the kings of the earth. And then in verse 2, we see their position. They were against the Lord and against his, his anointed and then in verse 3, we see their end goal. They desire to tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from them. They hoped that Christ's reign and influence would be short-lived and brought to a sudden end. The beginning of this psalm is about the hostility that Christ endured from the nations, the peoples, and the kings of the earth. And now I want to... Uh, I guess just to prove that I'm not making this up, uh, turn to the New Testament to see how the apostles in the early church under, that they understood Psalm 2 
in this way. So turn to Acts chapter 4, verse 23. And as you're turning there, I just want to provide the context of the passage that we're going to read. So Peter and John uh, were on their way to the temple uh, and they came across a physically disabled uh, beggar. And as they approached the temple, the man asked them for money. He asked them for alms. And Peter said in response, I do not possess silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. And then a a validated, public, very public miracle occurred before them. The man's ankles were strengthened, and the man who the Jewish people had passed by for years, sitting at the temple begging, and maybe even they passed by him for decades, was now healed in standing before them. This is someone they would have recognized. And so Peter took this opportunity uh, to preach to them. And he told them that this man was healed in the name of Jesus whom they had crucified. And so the religious leaders did not take uh, this miracle and his message very well. And so Peter and John were arrested. Uh, But since there was no crime and a validated miracle had taken place, they had no choice but to release Uh, released them. And so they sent Peter and John away with a warning not to preach Christ anymore. And so that brings us to our text in Acts 4, verse 23. When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven in the earth, in the sea, in all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, and then here they quote Psalm 2, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand against the rulers and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So as They get released and they they get back together. They're praising God for what he had just done. And then they recite Psalm 2, but they recite it in the past tense. In Psalm 2, it says that the kings of the earth take their stand. This is what they're going to do. Uh, But when they recite it here in Acts 4, um, they reflect on the circumstances that unfolded regarding the the life, death, burial, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and they say that the kings of the earth took their stand. This has occurred. And then they actually identify specifically who it was who took their stand against the Lord and against his Christ. Look at verse 27. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Herod, the Roman uh, appointed king, tried to kill Jesus in his infancy when he ordered all the baby boys to be killed in Bethlehem, uh, the place of his birth, uh, who were under the age of two and under. That was his attempt. Uh, That was his uh, hostility towards the Lord and his anointed. And we read about that in Matthew 2.16. Pilate, In John 19, after stating that he had found no fault in Jesus, um, the peoples of Israel, the other group identified in Acts 4, still demanded that he be crucified. 
and, and Pilate conceded to their commands. He wanted to appease the mob who were in an uproar and the peoples who meditated on his death. And so he sentenced Christ to be crucified, which is why we say when we recite the creed that he suffered under Pontius Pilate. This is historical events that this, these group of believers saw happen in Acts, and in Acts 4, they're recounting it as they think about our psalm. So Herod, Pilate, the Gentiles, the Romans, and the peoples of Israel all band together against Christ. But look to verse 28. It says that they only managed to do what your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Peter and John's companions understood that although there, there was personal sin involved right, in these individuals and people groups that they had identified, and those people and groups were responsible for their sin, there was blood guilt on their hands for the crucifixion of Christ, and yet they only managed to do what the Lord predestined to occur from all eternity. Our, our confession on God's decree uh, it says that God's decree, which is where he foreordains whatsoever comes to pass, that, that, uh, that his decree does not take away uh, secondary causes, but rather establishes them. One of the secondary causes, causes, is, causes that he established is uh, free will. And so we would understand that Pilate, uh, of his own free will, sinned against Christ when he... Uh, uh, condemned him to death. And yet, the Lord uh, uses evil for good. He can use what you meant for evil, he says in Genesis, for uh, God uses for good. He can use it to a good end. He will accomplish all that he has decreed. And so we've established that their, their understanding, the early church, the apostles, their understanding of Psalm 2 was messianic. Uh, but in verse 29, we see that this understanding did not cause them to see this psalm as irrelevant for their Christian life, but rather it provided them comfort in the face of uh, serious persecution. Look at Acts 4, verse 29. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal. And signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. These believers were just ordered not to preach Christ or else. And they prayed to the Lord and said, take note of their threats. Take note of those who still stand against you in your church. And let them be like the, to use Psalm 1 language, let them be like the chaff that the wind drives away. Let them not stand in your judgment and give us boldness to speak your word. And the boldness that they received was not derived from themselves. They didn't just find it in them to be bold, but it came from the Holy Spirit as they reflected on the psalm that tells the saints that the risen Christ is king. And this brings us to the second paragraph in our psalm and the second voice that speaks in verses four through six. We see in response to the nations that raged and were in an uproar, the father laughs 
and installs his king. Look at Psalm 2, verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Right? Although the nations rage and the people are meditating on the death of his son, the kings of the earth take their stand against him. He who sits in heavens, in the heavens laughs. My friend uh, the other week visited my office at, at work, and he's uh, almost as tall as I am, but way bigger. And he also trains uh, jujitsu uh, regularly, at least he says he does. And so he was trying to convince me to, to train with him. And uh, for some reason, this happens to me when I'm talking to someone who trains jujitsu, I feel compelled to attack them, to just see uh, if it works, you know. And so I threw a move at him in the office, and his response was to laugh. He laughed because he's way stronger than I am. He knows what he's doing, and I don't. And so I posed no threat to him. In Job 42, verse 2, speaking to God, Job says, I know that you can do all things, and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Despite all of this hostility against the Lord, his authority is unchanged and unchallenged. And then the second half of verse 4 says that the Lord scoffs at them. The word scoffs here is another connection back to Psalm 1, verse 1. The blessed man did not sit in the seat of scoffers. He didn't join in fellowship with them, but he rather scoffs at those who are against him. God's laughter, as depicted just poetically in this psalm, should be an encouragement to us that no matter how great a threat something appears to be to the kingdom of God and to the church, the Lord who sits in the heavens laughs. And after laughing, then he speaks. Look at verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. This is good news for the people of God. Christ has been installed as king upon Zion. But a relevant question is, what is Zion? That's kind of important to understanding the significance of what it means for Christ to be installed upon it. And so turn to 2 Samuel 5. When you set out to answer this question, it serves as an important reminder that we need to read the Bible as a whole. Richard Barcelos often says that the context of any text is every text. So you, you can consider this next portion of the sermon as a brief but hopefully helpful biblical survey of Zion, scanning the, the scriptures to see its significance for us. And you could say in its most basic form, if you read Psalm uh, 48, verse 2, Zion is a hill on the north part of Jerusalem with a fortress on top of it. It's a historical site, in the beginning, at least. And so in Psalm 2, as we're looking at when Christ was, in, we're looking at when Christ was installed upon Zion. And so now we're going to go back into the Old Testament to read about when David, the one who prefigured Christ, 
when he was installed as king and his rule on Zion. And we'll see if uh, we can glean any insights into the significance of what it means for our Lord to be installed upon it. And so in 2 Samuel 5, verse 1, we read about kings um, installing moments or anoint, anoint, uh, when he was anointed as king. Verse 1 says, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and, and said, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. Previously, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and in. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be a ruler over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron. And then they anointed David king over Israel. And so David was appointed as king, but when he was made king, Zion, the fortress, right, the hill in the north side of Jerusalem, was occupied by his enemies. And so uh, we read about this in verses 6 through 7. So 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 6 says, Now the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, his enemies, and the, the inhabitants of the land. And they said to David, you, you shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will turn you away. David's enemies were, were so confident that he would not take the hill. They said the, the blind could fight you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Verse 7, nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion. David's first move as king was to take possession of the fortress on a hill. And then we see in verse 9 of 2 Samuel 5, that David calls the stronghold his own. Verse 9 says, So David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built all around from the citadel and inward. And David's second move as king was to call this stronghold that he had taken at his own possession. And he dwelled in it, and he built it up, and he fortified it. And then in verse 12, we read, and David realized that the Lord has established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. Now turn to Psalm 65, and I will summarize a few things while you're on the way there. So what is Zion? That's what we're asking. So far, it's a fortress on a hill that the anointed king captured, and he called it his own. He fortified it, and then the Lord blessed it for the sake of his people. But if we keep reading, we see that as redemptive history continues, because of the significance of Zion in Old Covenant history, the use of the name Zion was gradually applied, uh, uh, gradually expanded to mean more than that original historical site, the fortress on a hill. So David eventually brought the Ark of the Covenant there, and it became an anointed place. And then the location of Zion expanded to include Mount Moriah, which is where Solomon eventually built the temple. And, and because of the presence in the temple in Zion, this expanded sense of Zion, in the Psalms, Zion is then referenced as the place where God's people worship him. So look at Psalm 65.1. It says, There will be silence before you in praise in Zion, O God. 
And then at verse 3, it says, Iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, you forgive them. How blessed is the one whom you choose and bring near to you to dwell in your courts. We will be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. So Psalm 65, what we just read, shows that there will be praise in Zion from the people of God. And they praise him because the people in Zion have had their sins forgiven. And they have been brought near to God into his temple. Now turn to Psalm 69, just a few pages to the right. Then in Psalm 69, verse 35 through 36, it shows that Zion is not just the place where uh, the people of God are allowed temporary access to worship, but because of the people's relationship to the king, they actually inherit Zion as a permanent dwelling place. Psalm 69, verse 35, For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and possess it. The descendants of his servants will inherit it, and those who love his name will dwell in it. Now turn to Hebrews 12, 22, the last passage that we'll look at. You can see as redemptive history develops, the territory and meaning of Zion expands. It expands from being simply a fortress on a hill in the north part of Jerusalem to being the city of the king. And it became a sacred place where the temple was built. And it became the place where the people of God are welcomed in to worship him. And the people who dwell there have had their sins forgiven. And then finally in Hebrews 12, 22, the New Testament pulls all of these uses and historical events together and applies it to the messianic king and the promise that we have in the new covenant of grace. Hebrews 12, 22 says, but you, new covenant believer, new covenant believing Jew, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Now you can turn, your, uh, turn back to Psalm 2. So when you think about our psalm, with a whole or brief, but hopefully helpful, biblical theology of Zion in view, we can rightly understand that as the church, we have come to Mount Zion where Christ has been installed as king. So what is Zion? It's the city on a hill, the church, that Christ has taken as his own possession, and he rules and defends it. He expands its borders and fortifies them. And he has drawn us near into its gates and we worship him there. And because we love his name or because he first loved us, we have an inheritance in it as our dwelling place. And those who dwell there have had their sins forgiven. That's Zion. So we've looked at three sections or two sections. Number one was the nations who raged. 
Number two is the father who laughed and installed his king. And now number three, we'll look at the son who inherits and judges. Verse seven, say, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now here the son speaks and he tells us of the decree of the Lord. And we must understand Psalm 2, 7 through 9, this section through the lens of what is called the covenant of redemption, which was a covenant or commitment that was made between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before the foundation of the earth. And in this covenant, the Father uh, calls the Son to become the mediator of God's chosen people. The Father calls the Son to become incarnate, to take to himself a true body in a human soul, to be born in a low condition, to be made under the law, to undergo the miseries of this life, a cursed death on a cross, to be buried, and to continue under the power of death for a time. And as our confession says on Christ the Mediator, it says that this office our Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake. The willingness of Christ to fulfill this calling as our mediator is demonstrated throughout the scriptures and in Isaiah, but there's probably no greater place that shows us his willingness to do this than when he said, no one takes my life, but I lay it down. No one takes his life from him, but he lays it down. Because the son was called by the father to this task, the son came as Yahweh's servants. And this is reflected in the servant songs of Isaiah, which our Lord applied to himself in the gospel of Luke. Jesus said that he came not to be served, but to serve. He said that he came not to do his own will, but the will of him who sent him. Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then Philippians 2.9 says, for this reason, also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So in the covenant of redemption, the father not only called the son to become the mediator for God's people, but he also covenanted to him a kingdom as his reward. And this is why Hebrews 12, 22 says that, um, I don't think that is Hebrews 12, 22. I think it's 17, but I know it's in Hebrews 12, It was for the joy, we read it in our scripture reading today, it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. The joy that was set before Christ was established in the covenant between the Father and the Son. Christ would suffer, but then Christ would receive the nations as his inheritance and a people as his own possession. And we see this on display in uh, Isaiah 53, 10 through 12. You don't have to turn there. Um, it's, a, it's a well-known passage. But pay attention as I read this to both the call of Yahweh to his servant to suffer as our mediator, but also the promised reward for doing so. Isaiah 53, 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if... 
he would render himself as a guilt offering, saying, if he does this, then he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. 12, therefore, right? Or it's saying, because he has done this, therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty or treasure with the strong. And so we see in Isaiah both the calling to suffer as our mediator and the covenantal reward. The son would render himself as an offering for guilt and therefore the father would allot him a portion with the great and grant him an inheritance. So with this in mind, J.V. Fesco argued that Psalm 2-7 could be rightly understood as saying, I will tell of the covenant of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And regarding that second portion of uh, the father saying, you are my son, today I have begotten you, Samuel Pierce said in his commentary that here we see the first words the father spoke to his son on resurrection day. Christ fulfilled what he was called to do by his father. He was obedient to the point of death on a cross. And after completely satisfying the divine justice of God, the father says, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. Now, obviously, if you take uh, begotten as referencing that Christ is eternally begotten of the Father, which is uh, true, then you have to interpret today as an eternal today. God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Christ was begotten of the Father yesterday. He was begotten of the Father a thousand years from now, and he was uh, eternally begotten. And so it's an it's a eternal today. However, I believe that this text, um, when it says today, I believe that this text is speaking about the Lord's day. Right? It's speaking about his resurrection day. And the reason I think that is because Acts 13.33 quotes this verse when speaking about the resurrection of Christ and, and Colossians 1 verse 18 says that Christ, as head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He's begotten from the dead. He's the firstborn from the dead. So then upon his resurrection, the father tells the son to ask him, ask the father for the reward that was committed to him in the covenant made between them both. And this explains the flow of thought in verses 7 through 8 in our psalm. In verse 7, we see that after Christ laid his life down in obedience to the Father, the Father says on his resurrection day, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And then in verse 8, the Father tells the Son to ask of me. Ask me for the kingdom which was covenanted to you from all eternity. And then the father says, I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Before Christ ascended, he told his disciples that all authority had been given to him on heaven and on earth. And then he told them to therefore go and make disciples 
of every nation. In Isaiah 2, it describes both God's word going out and his people coming in. In Isaiah 2, verse 2, it says, Now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of mountains. This is Zion language here. And will be raised above the hills. And all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the law, or the instruction, the Torah, will, will go forth from Zion in the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So Isaiah 2 um, describes that his word is going forth from Zion and the people and people from every tribe and tongue are coming to the mountain of the Lord. And this temple or this mountain is a, it's spiritual in, na- in nature. In the new covenant, Zion, it's not a place that you need to travel to, right, by horseback. Christ said that his kingdom is not of this world and that his people will worship him in spirit and in truth. So the only way for anyone to come to his holy mountain is for his word to go out from Zion and for them to receive it by faith. Jesus said in Psalm or John 6:37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Christ will not lose one soul that the Father has given to him from the nations. So the word goes out from Zion through his church, and we pray that his kingdom would come and for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. But as his word goes out, that doesn't mean that it will be received with joy by all, by everyone. Right? There are still nations that rage in people who plot in vain against Christ and against his church. And so in verse 9, our Lord, after telling us of what the Father has committed to him, he turns our attention back to those who stand against him, against them and speaks of their judgment. It says in verse 9, You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Psalm 110 verse 1 says that Christ will sit at the right hand of the Father until all his enemies are made a footstool under his feet. The Baptist Catechism says that Christ, executing his office as king, does three things. He subdues us to himself and praise God for that. He rules and defends us. And three, he restrains and conquers all his and our enemies. There have been some pretty sinister people in human history who have taken their stand against God and persecuted the church. But they, know, they pose no threat to the Almighty. They will not stand in the judgment. And the people of God, when enduring such trials, should trust in the Lord and pray with the psalmist in Psalm 920 when he says, Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. So in section 1, verses 1 through 3, the nations rage. In 4 through 6, the, the father responds and laughs and installs his king. 
In 7 through 9, the son speaks and tells us of the covenant, of the decree, and what he inherits and that he judges. And then in 10 through 12, we see the spirit warns and welcomes. And I say that the spirit speaks in this paragraph because the voice of the psalmist is the narrator in this section. But we read earlier in Acts 4.25 that it was by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of David that this psalm was written. So here we hear the Spirit speak through the mouth of David as he warns and welcomes. Verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth, and worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. And how blessed are all who take refuge in him. Kings and leaders of nations have the temptation to trust in their position. Tyrants believe they have authority autonomously and, and that they answer to no one. But the psalm warns them that no matter how much they try to burst away his cord and tear away God's fetter from them, all authority has been given to Christ. Proverbs 21.1 says that the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. There are many examples in the Old Testament where wicked kings and leaders of wicked nations set out to fulfill their sinful desires but they foolishly failed to recognize that the Almighty turns them wherever he wishes. And he even uses their sin to accomplish a good end. And this psalm is a great example of God doing just that. The nations raged, the peoples plotted in vain against the Lord and his anointed. And yet they only set in motion the events that led to our Lord willingly laying down his life to redeem all those that the Father had given him. For three days, they believed they had successfully cut off the cord of his sovereign rule over them. But then on the Lord's day, the father said, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. He's the firstborn from the dead. And he was raised and he ascended and he was exalted with the name that is above every name. And then he sat down at the right hand of the father while he will reign until all of his enemies are made a footstool at his feet. Christ will have victory over all his and our enemies. In one of the ways that Christ as king restrains and conquers all of his enemies is that by his grace, he subdues many to himself. We saw this when the gospel was preached at Pentecost to many of those who were, who were pretty much directly responsible for the crucifixion of Christ. And we learn that many repented of their sins and were forgiven. We saw this when Christ called Paul to be an apostle when he formerly was a persecutor of Christ in his church. And it's also the case for every redeemed soul, especially for those who came to know Christ later in life. That they once took their stand against the Lord in their hearts and they were hostile to God in their minds. And yet, according to the kindness and mercy of God, he has called many lost people out of the domain of darkness and into his marvelous light. He subdued us to himself. And in that vein, 
The Spirit warns in verse 10, and then he welcomes in 11. And this shows that it's not too late for those who previously stood against him to come to repent and to worship the Son. Verse 11 says, Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Here we have a call to worship. I have not previously thought of Psalm 2 as an appropriate text for the call to worship, but I think verse 11 would make it appropriate. We're called to worship the Lord with reverence and rejoicing and trembling. So he tells the kings of the earth and the peoples who plot in vain to stop their raging and stop their plotting and to worship the Lord with reverence, fear, and rejoicing. And notice how fear and rejoicing are paired together. We fear because he is the eternally begotten son of the father. And he is the king of kings. And his wrath is quickly kindled against sin. And yet we rejoice because he is our brother in the flesh. He is a friend of sinners. And he's not only the king of kings, but he's also our king. And we are his people. So I want to close by drawing your attention to how this psalm ends. It says, How blessed are those who take refuge in him, in this king. And this closes the connection between Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Psalm 1 begins, it opens by saying, Blessed is the man. And then Psalm 1 describes a man who was righteous and without sin. And then Psalm 2 shows us that this blessed man was God's son. And he has been installed as head and king over his church. And so I, I mentioned last time that I got this analogy from Chad Bird and I can't get it out of my head now, but these two Psalms act as the double doors, which opens up the book of the Psalms for us and in them we see Christ. And you should walk into the rest of the book of the Psalms with these words on your lips. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you have subdued us to yourself and brought us near into your kingdom where we can worship you and praise you for all that you've done. We're thankful that when we take refuge in your Son by faith, that you pardon all of our sins and account us righteous in your sight. We're thankful that when we take refuge, refuge in you by faith, that you not only forgive our sins and impute the righteousness of Christ to our account, but you adopt us as your sons and daughters. And we're also thankful that you not only justify us and adopt us, but you have given us your spirit to renew us and enable us to die more and more to sin and live unto righteousness out of thankfulness in our hearts for all that you've done. Lord, we pray that as our king who rules upon Zion, the head over the church, that you would rule and defend us and restrain and conquer all your enemies. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.